everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with uh, Nick Bagley. Um, Nick, uh, first, did I say your did I say your name right? Is it Nick? Got Bagley? it. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Great. And um, can you just give the audience a little bit of your background? Uh, who are you? What do you do? Sure. I am a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School. I've done that since 2010. I worked before that at the Justice Department, and I spent last year serving as chief counsel to Governor Whitmer, and um, a couple of years before that, serving as special counsel on her COVID response. Uh-huh. And uh, what years were you in the Justice Department? What was your job there? 2007 to 2010, I was a line attorney. I was in the, on the appellate staff in the civil division, so defending government from people who wanted to sue it over kind of whatever you might imagine. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, we're so we're here to talk about your uh, your uh, article, your law review article, uh, the procedure uh, fetish. And I, you know, I read this article, and and basically, if you're going to summarize it, you can summarize it in a sentence or two. You know, my understanding is basically government wants to do good things. And there's too much preventing them government from doing these things. And basically we need to, we need to stop that. So could you just sort of uh, give, expand on that a little bit and say how you sort of think about it, administrative <laughs> law and, you know, the role of government? Yeah. I mean, I think the way I thought of the paper um, was really more of a polemic directed at the political left than at the political right. Um, although I've shifted a little bit over time Um I think if you are located on the political right, do you think government is apt to screw things up and you are suspicious of pointy-headed bureaucrats and their ability to interfere in private ordering? I think the desire to layer procedure on procedure to effectively emasculate government or make it very difficult to act um, makes some sense. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not as convinced of that as I was even just five years ago, but I, I understand the impulse. Um, but on the political left, what I find and have found um, distressing is um, sort of a, a an unreflective embrace of procedural rules that are all designed to achieve good ends, to keep agencies within legal bounds and to make sure they're taking concerns like costs and benefits and equity and uh, public accountability and all the rest into account. But... Um, the end of the day, too many of our agencies are simply, you know, hemmed in by too many uh, rules to effectively do their jobs. And so this paper was an effort to try to explore why it is that lawyers in particular and the left um, in particular have become enamored of this procedurally oriented approach to governance, which is actually, you know, it's not confined to the United States, but we are an unusually... Um, staunch adherent to that kind of legalism in terms of international comparisons. So that's what the paper was attempting to explore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I think we should probably, I mean, some people are going to have law backgrounds and some people are not. So I think for uh, people who don't, it's probably just worth sort of spelling out. You're talking about administrative law, right? You're not talking about uh, uh, barriers of, to the, for Congress or the Supreme Court or something doing what they want. So basically, the way our system works is you have Congress, it passes laws, it creates these government agencies, right? And these government agencies will have a broad mission, right? And then they'll have a lot of discretion in, in how they do that mission. And then the administrative agencies are um, restricted by a bunch of rules. You have to do X, Y, Z before you uh, uh, go ahead with that mission. And basically, these are this is what we're this is the subset of the government that we're talking about. The rules are basically getting in the way of um, of the administrative agencies, basically trying to improve people's lives. Is that right? 
That's yeah. That's that's the basic picture. I'll complicate it only by saying that a lot of the procedural rules that hem agencies in do come from Congress, uh, and a lot of the kind of administrative um, the the administrative legal apparatus that's been created over time has been responsive to congressional desires. So there's a you know it's not just a a way of focusing on the way that agencies circumscribe their own authority, but the way that we collectively through the legislature have circumscribed agencies' power. Right. And this is, there's been a lot of uh, judicial interpretation here too, right? There was oh, increased a ton. Yeah. That, that was, uh, that, that's a recent development, is it not? That was like, yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways you can chart the history here is to look back at the adoption of the Administrative Procedure Act back in the immediate cold post war era. So 1946, the APA is adopted. And this is like the Bible for, um, administrative law. It's sort of the the backbone of federal administrative review and oversight. And it basically says, look, agencies, you're going to get a lot of room to operate, but when you behave in certain ways, you've got to abide by certain rules. And at the end of the day, um, some of your actions are going to be subject to judicial review. Courts are going to get a chance to come in. And over time, the pretty spare language of the Administrative Procedure Act, it doesn't actually hem agencies in all that much, was interpreted by the courts to impose greater and greater procedural burdens. And this really took off in the 1970s and 80s and is continuing even today. And it's really a legacy, I think, of a kind of um, skepticism about the role of government power that arose in the early 1970s. Uh, And the skepticism drew on lots of different strains, but you can point to the civil rights movement as being a big place where people said, wait a minute, maybe government shouldn't just be left to its own devices. Look at all these states in the South are doing. Um, It was a response to a feeling that government was in the pocket of big business, that it was uh, not responsive to public needs when it came to things like public safety. Um, So Ralph Nader made his name, you know, railing against the lack of safety features in automobiles. And that kind of kicked off a consumer rights movement. Um, you kind of put all, and, and the rise, of course, of the environmental movement is another part of this of this kind of 1970s skepticism that made people think, wait a minute, maybe the answer here is not giving agencies a lot of discretion. Maybe the answer here is um, to use outside levers of authority to make sure that agencies stay in line. They, they do what we want them to do. And you know, while I think it's understandable why progressives of the time chose that approach. I think it has led to an accretion of procedures that now make government dysfunctional in very deep ways, ways that I think are bad on both the left and the right, that basically make it very difficult for government to accomplish the collective ends that we've set for it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, there's ways to approach, you know, this discussion. I, you know, I heard you on um, Ezra Klein and it's interesting to sort of hear this, you know, uh, uh, as a debate, like sort of between two liberals uh, talking about, you know, how to get government working better Um, from my, you know, from a, from a broader perspective, um, you know, you must have opinions about why, you know, government can be trusted with this power. Um, And so let me just ask you, you know, what's, what's wrong with the basic conservative libertarian position that Mm -hmm. the incentives are wrong. They have limited information. um, Government agencies are going to do stupid things and it's probably better to just, you know, limit their, limit their power to the greatest extent possible if we can. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll accept all of that until I'll jump off just at the last station, which is that of course, 
bureaucrats have limited information. Of course, they can make dunderheaded decisions. Um, but by the same token, there are all sorts of reasons, good reasons, for thinking that government regulation is essential and will inure to the benefit of the public. I think the cleanest examples of this come in the context of externalities. So if you're thinking about a factory, a power plant, or a um, you know, a manufacturing facility that is belching out <clears throat> pollutants that end up harming us all collectively. Well, they're not going to take the costs of that pollution into account unless they're forced to. So, you know, it's a classic rationale for government intervention. It's one that um, I think is pretty unimpeachable. And the question then becomes, okay, can we trust the agencies that we've given the authority to regulate to do so effectively. And there, I think the proof is in the pudding. Um, you know, the Clean Air Act was adopted in the night, you know, re readopted in the 1970s and has had enormous positive and beneficial effects on air quality nationwide. We see in the developing world where those controls aren't in place, terrible air pollution that is killing millions of people every year. Um, I think it's hard to look back on that and think that regulation is at the root of all that ails us. Um, that's not to deny that regulation can be excessive and that you can have a kind of reflex for stupid regulation. You know, I think it's easy to point to occupational licensure, for example, as being a set of regulations that are very difficult to defend in many cases. Um, the last thing I'll say about all this is that I think there's a temptation on the right to blame a lot of the problems on the existence of agencies that have discretion. But many of the most you know, ridiculous things that agencies do are directed by legislatures themselves. These aren't the exercises of discretion. They are statutory mandates handed down. The other thing I'll say is um, the demand for government regulation, whenever it comes to safety standards or controlling externalities or regulating the marketplace, the demand exists. And for, I think, some very good reasons. And I think the libertarian response unsettles me a little bit because it seems like you want to sometimes deny the demand and enfeeble the tool that will be reached for. And to my mind, what I think is probably probably a more sensible approach and one that I think can speak across political uh, lines is, look, we have a demand. We've got some things that the government is going to, that people are going to clamor for. Let's make sure that we've got government agencies that are effective, nimble, that can think carefully, that can help us um, to make sure that we're not, you know, tied down as private industry with a bunch of stupid rules that don't serve, serve our interests well. Um, I said it was the last thing, but I'll add one thing more, which is I think the way that government regulations tend to go awry when you don't have, when you, when you have agencies that are unable to achieve their missions, it's by locking in the current status quo. What you end up doing is have a bunch of regulations that incumbents can negotiate pretty effectively, but it makes it very difficult for um, plucky startups to come in and actually, you know, get off the ground. And you see that kind of an effort on the part of incumbents to use regulations to their own advantage. And I think if you want agencies that can stand up to that kind of pressure, I don't think you want weakened, procedurally emaciated agencies. You want agencies that are empowered to actually take the public interest more broadly into account. Um, so I think that's the picture as, as I see it. Mm. 
Yeah, you you have well, you have some interesting, uh, you know, you have some interesting ideas in your paper along those lines. You know, I, I think you wrote about the uh, uh, the fact that you have this, for example, notice and comment procedure. So under the APA, the agencies have to go out and they have to say we're going to, you know, maybe institute this rule, and then basically people can send them comments. And who ends up sending them the comments? Well, you know, it's it's a huge portion of them are major corporations. Now, you know, from a libertarian perspective, you might say, okay, they're just, you know, they're just warding off this regulation that's just going to be stupid. And the other, you know, the other perspective is they're being, you know, they're being captured or they're being influenced. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there's not like, uh, it's not completely obvious that it's always going to be the case that government is just warding off bad regulations because government is also, I mean, private businesses are probably in many cases also going to want to uh, get, get advantages and lock those advantages in. Um, so, th- so that makes, that makes sense. Um, the EPA is, is an interesting one because I think that that's, you know, like regulating pollutants in the air. Um, I think that's probably like the classic case, textbook case of justified government interference. You know, I don't think you'd find, you know, many libertarians or conservatives who agree with that in theory. It's sort of funny that the EPA like ends up like one of the most unpopular, one of the most unpopular agencies, at least on the right. I mean, they're always complaining about the EPA, but it seems like the EPA in theory um, should be one of those things that you think would uh, exist. And I think you're right. I think it's good to think about these things as far as, you know, empirical data on what's happening, what's happened over the decades. You know, there's other areas of, you know, American, and maybe you give me your thoughts on this, of American life where, you know, the returns aren't as as obvious. Um, so Department of Education, I mean, government spending goes up. It, it's hard to see, you know, the, the you know, the uh, results there, the test scores, you know, correlation with the uh, government spending. Um, OSHA, I mean, I know there's been decrease in, uh, 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 you know, Workplace place fatalities, but if you a lot of these things, you look at the trend lines before you know the 1960s, the 1970s, the rise of the uh, welfare, the welfare, the regulation, the regulatory state. Um, these things were going down at the same pace or at a, at a larger pace before. So you know you think maybe this is just you know people are getting wealthier and they're you know they're less willing to take risks and the market is taking care of that. So do, do you see that? Do you do you think in terms of like there's policy areas where clearly regulation has been good and then some where where it has been bad? I mean, do you see that similarly or do you, do you sort of see you know how i guess how broadly applicable do you see your theory across different policy domains i guess is is what i'm getting at yeah i mean it's very difficult to paint with a broad brush because government is extraordinarily complicated because our economy is really complicated and you know so i i i of course take the point that there are lots of areas where government intrusion has either been kind of a, a swing and a miss or even counterproductive um and in those areas i don't think there's any reason to hold on to a failed experiment. And, and of course, we'll have to debate which are in fact failed experiments. And that's going to be informed by data and by, um, you know, close attention to that particular regulatory domain. So it is it is hard for me to paint with a broad brush. What I, what I can say is that at least at the federal level, major regulations go through a centralized review process where part of what the little agency called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs within OMB Part of what they do is tally up the costs and benefits of the major rules that are adopted every year. And these costs and benefits are, you know, they're, they're agency economists trying to crunch the numbers. They're, you know, this is not a, a process where it's, you know, you're told to get a particular answer and then they go and, you know, massage the numbers to get that particular answer. But it looks like over time, the regulations that are imposed in the band, the big ticket regulations end up having societal benefits that exceed their costs. That's consistent with there being a lot of needless regulations out there. 
but I think it does not support the blunderbuss kind of let's just, you know, torch the whole thing and not, you know, we don't really believe in government. You know, if I, if I have a message for, you know, folks who see the world a little differently, more differently than I do, um, I think it's, it's that it's just much more complicated than you might think. And there are lots of domains where some measure of government intervention will make things better. And, you know, I wish, I wish it was as simple as saying I have a general attitude or orientation toward the state and that'll just give me my answers. I just, I just don't think the world is that simple. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, you know, and when you look at sort of the universe of things that government could potentially be doing, um, you know, there's some things that do look like, you know, low hanging fruit, you know, there's some, you know, uh, particle in the atmosphere and, you know, it costs like $200,000 per life saved. And, you know, that's like so obvious you should just, you should just regulate that thing. Um, and then there's some stuff that just looks like, you know, sort of, uh, uh popular sort of hysteria, you know, like, like vaping. I, I don't know if there was ever any evidence that, you know, vaping was a big deal, but, you know, it became a big news story for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cost-benefit analysis is, you know, interesting. I think that's probably the most convincing case to somebody who's going to be a conservative or libertarian. Like somebody's, you know, I, I, I don't always, try, you know, sometimes the data is not, you know, sometimes social science you could be skeptical of. But yeah, there is a way to do cost-benefit analysis that gets you in the right universe of sort of whether this is uh, uh, good or good or bad. But you actually think that the cost and cost-benefit, and we do too much of that, right? Like you, you think sort of you... Uh, no, you, you, are you yeah, shaking, no, I'm shaking my head. Podcast listeners can't see that, but no, I don't think it, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we do too much cost benefit analysis. I think that cost benefit analysis is actually an invaluable tool for thinking through how to select stringency of standards, for example. And I think without it, it's very difficult even to know where you start. Um, the, the criticism I have of the way we do cost benefit analysis is, is institutional. So this, little office called OIRA that I mentioned earlier uh, was key in getting agencies across the administrative state to start doing and to do more rigorously cost-benefit analysis. And they now today review, kind of check the homework of all of the federal agencies that engage in CBA. The problem with that isn't so much that there is a lot of cost-benefit analysis happening or that OIRA is um, helping to standardize processes across the administrative state. It's that OIRA is a tiny little office that serves as a bottleneck to regulations and kind of place where even under a democratic administration regulations, good regulations can go to die. Um, and that's the concern I have. And it's not even so much that there is a bottleneck there. And and that's, you know, the horror of that. It's that it is one more bottleneck and a string of bottlenecks that includes judicial review, includes the extraordinary rigors of the notice and comment process, includes endless public feedback and, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Um, that makes it extremely difficult to do anything of any consequence. Um, and again, I, I, I worry about that, not because I'm a, a fan of regulation in the abstract, and I'm just happy to see it go through, but because I think we can save lives if we do that. And because I think moving us forward is going to, like, when it comes to some of the biggest challenges of the 21st century, is going to require government to be pretty nimble and pretty involved. Um, and if at every stage we say, nope, you've got to go through this rigorous 17-point process, I don't think we're going to get where we need to go. The, the biggest example here for, for me and the thing that keeps me up at night is the, is the move to renewables. I think there's a kind of hand-wavy assumption on the left that if we throw money at the problem, somehow all these solar firms are going to be cited and these wind farms are going to be installed and 
we won't ever have to see them and we won't actually have to build them on, on public lands or on lands of any size or in scope. And, and the numbers just don't support that. It's going to be a massive infrastructure investment. And we don't do that kind of thing anymore. And government is part of the reason we don't do any of that anymore. So if you care about dynamism in the American economy, I think you have to think a lot more critically about how to empower the federal government and state government, state and local governments in particular, to be more effective and responsive. Yeah. So you mentioned you um, you worked on uh, you worked uh, on COVID policy uh, under Governor Governor uh, Whit- uh, Whitmer of Michigan. Um, how do you that you know that gets me thinking? How do you think about sort of the FDA performance during COVID? I mean, in the context of of your ideas, you know, what was the problem there that they didn't have you know didn't have flexibility? Like, no, they they didn't have to go through you know, the FDA CDC didn't have to go through a rulemaking process during COVID. I mean, they were they pretty much had permission to to hurry things up. Um, you know, from the reporting, a lot they were the FDA was resistance, and it was, it was the Trump administration to a large extent that was saying go faster on the vaccines. I think you know, smart people looking back saying, you know, we went, it was good to go fast, and we should have probably gone faster. Um, so, how do you think about your ideas in the context of just FDA and sort of what happened there? Yeah, I think it, <clears throat> the record of FDA is a is a mixed bag. I think there's no doubt about it. They did have quite broad authority under the emergency use authorization to move quickly on therapeutics and vaccines. And by historical standards, they moved very quickly on both by standards of a a pandemic that was killing people by the day. Every moment matters. And there were moments in that process that could have been shortened, that could have been tightened and should have been. Um, I think the biggest mistake, the one that I look back on and I was just tearing my hair out at the time I wasn't serving for the governor at that moment, but was um, when the efficacy data on the vaccines came out, it was quite clear that a first dose provided substantial protection from COVID. And the moment you saw the chart showing that, you should have thought, okay, first dose is first, get it to as, in as many arms as we can quickly. And FDA failed to do that. And they also spent a ton of time, and not just them, but the, you know, this is these are advisory groups that advise both FDA and CDC, a ton of time wringing their hands over very complicated equity dispersion um, rules that were much too complicated to actually effectuate on short notice and that um, assured that some very high-risk people were not getting the vaccine quickly. And there was a very easy way to draw, you know, to, to create a line, which is by age. I mean, this disease is extraordinarily age-specific in its in its death rates. So, you know, there's a lot more to say about FDA and people who are more familiar with FDA can and, and have said it. I, I highly recommend um, Scott Gottlieb's book on this. Uh, he is you know, extraordinary at thinking through the, the challenges. I think he's maybe gentler on FDA than he, than he should have been. Um, but nonetheless, I think overall, you know, you can't look back and think our government functioned as appropriately as it should have during the, during the COVID pandemic. And FDA was part of that. Yeah. And, and when I look, you know, and I look at it, you know, it's not just, you know, what did they do and what did they not do? Sort of what signal am I getting about the kind of people who populate, you know, FDA and, and CDC? You talked about the age thing. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, uh, you know, a lot of these 
mass recommendations, you know, for kids. I mean, you talked about the age thing. It's, it's just the, the kids' risk was, you know, so low um, from the beginning. And then the, you know, n- them not, you know, jumping up and down and saying we have to move on the vaccines. I mean, things like human challenge trials, I mean, never, as far as I know, never even seriously uh, considered. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people can look at that and say, look, these people are, and maybe this is just FDA, maybe this is just whoever happened to be in charge at the time. They're overly cautious. They don't do cost benefit well. So why should we you know, why should we trust them with, with more discretion? Why, what's stopping someone from taking that, uh, taking that lesson from it? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I take <clears throat> something close to the opposite lesson from it, which is it's true. FDA underperformed and there was a kind of reactive bureaucratic instinct that took over at a time when we really needed to move fast and, and, you know, make the best choice we had under conditions of high uncertainty. Um, I think that the way you get a, an agency to function better is by bringing in better people, by making it a um, a highly uh, sought after job, by making it a highly prestigious job, by paying better, by making sure that the folk who are there are have the 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 backbone, the um, the right incentives to make tough calls that you know might make political minders might make you know more conventionally bureaucratic types very nervous you know the risk of course is that you're just gonna you know pay more for the same stodgy bureaucrats and certainly there's some risk of that but if you really care about a dynamic agency you know that the answer of of simply railing on the fda i'm not sure that that's an effective response another way of, of thinking about it is is the libertarian response seems to anticipate that the desired end, end state is the elimination of the FDA or its, its radical minimization. And I think that's a, that, I think that just is a, a manifestation of a kind of utopian fallacy. You know, it'd be nice to get there from here, but I don't think we're going to go back to a time of patent medicine where we aren't going to insist on high quality, uh, not a, you know clinical trials before we allow drugs to be sold and if that's the case we should be all collectively thinking how do we make this agency work better so it doesn't do dumb things and does very smart things and you know i i i want to have that conversation and that's there's not a lot of political room to have that conversation yeah and so what so you talked to you you touched on sort of the personnel issue um there was a executive order near the end of the trump administration i think it was 13 Nine five seven that would have um, basically made it easier to f- uh, for the president to fire uh, large numbers of of people uh, within the federal government. It was repealed, I think, at, uh, upon Biden right away about uh, upon Biden coming into office. Um, what did what did you think of that at the time? I mean, what do you think about reforms like that? Just putting it more under you know under political control, and that that seems like it would it would take care of some of these goals, right? It would probably move. Yeah, through. I think civil service reform is a hard case for me. Um, because we, I, I think there is a lot to be said for the kind of nimbleness in hiring and firing that you see, um, and you can see in the private sector, and obviously you don't see as much of in government. Um, I will say that our experience with the spoil system and with highly partisan hiring and firing in government is um, not inspiring. And suggests that the pathologies there may well be worth guarding against, even if it creates some creakiness in bureaucracy. Um, you know, I can say, like I said, I think this is a hard case for me. I don't have 
very strong priors, except to note that we adopted civil service reform for very good reason, and we ought to be cautious about um, about getting rid of something that has more or less served us well over time. You know, we had civil service reform in place at the beginning of, you know, in the, in the front half of the 20th century, when we really did do big things. So I don't know that it's an essential component of clearing away some of the underbrush um, when it comes to procedural um, rules. Yeah. What do you think about the way we select um, federal employees in the first place? You know, the civil service exam, um, that was sort of a casualty of, of civil rights law. There was a, uh, there was a, uh, uh, there was a, um, a settlement um, between the Justice Department and I think the Civil Service Commission where they were worried about disparate impact on the uh, civil service exam. And they basically have been looking for new, new ways to hire ever since. And they, you know, they, they've gotten rid of that. Do you think we need, um, do you think we've gone too far? You talked about these sort of equity concerns getting in the way of effective government. Does, do you see that as one of these cases? I'm not familiar enough with it to be able to comment intelligently. I think I'd, I'd want to ask about the alternatives that are that are in the offing, um, you know, and, you know, in a a highly unequal society, there will be some disparate impact from any neutral tool that you adopt. And if you therefore discard the tool and consistently overlook qualified people, I am, I do have some concerns. Um, But again, I don't know that that's the alternative, you know, it depends very much on what you replace the test with. Mm -hmm. And you would be probably, you would probably be in favor of, I'm guessing higher, higher pay, um, easier, easier to fire. If, if it's not political control, how would you, you know, how would you sort of, uh, how would you, how would you design this? Have you, have you thought about this or looked at other countries and seen ones that do this particularly well? I mean, I, it can't be that, you know, the, um, uh, you know, I, I did see one one piece of data that said that the, basically, I don't know, how, I don't remember how exactly they measured, but basically, federal employees were had the most secure job, you know, of any of any sector you could look at, right? And, and that's believable, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not except it's, professors, yeah, <laughs> except for tenured professors, right? Depends on if you've met yeah, that hurdle, right? Of um, so, how, how do you think about sort of the because the you know it's not as easy as the private sector because you have you know objective metrics are you selling something or making a profit or not so how, how does you know how does it work at government do you do you just is this another form of discretion you just give to the agencies and say we're going to get smart professional people and let them sort of run it the way they see see best yeah i mean i think it's a fallacy to think that every organization has metrics they can point to for every one of their employees and say you hit that or didn't in a kind of mechanical quantitative way um, there are all sorts of ways of measuring performance and some of them are soft and qualitative and you know they there are a lot of places in the private sector where where low performing people kind of hang on for extended periods as well so it's not like you know it's a it's a an ideal over there um but yeah i mean like the the bottom line is that we are so afraid of the exercise of discretion at so many of our agencies that we have handcuffed them in ways that end up being counterproductive. And, you know, to the extent that what you want is an entity that can make those qualitative judgments and act on them. I want to hire X person because they're great and we're going to pay a little more, but it's going to be worth it. And as a manager of this organization, I am trusted to make that call. I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Does that mean there are going to be some abuse of that discretion? Sure. I mean, discretion is always abused in private and public institutions all the time. Um, But it doesn't follow that the answer is to try to squeeze discretion out by creating a bunch of 
rules that actually, you know, like don't make the entity serve the purposes that we set for it. Yeah. So what's, what are some of the sort of, uh, are there, are there low hanging fruits sort of here that you think government should be doing that it can't because of the, uh, because of the restrictions placed on it? What, what sort of, what gets you excited about if you, you know, if you could, um, to, you know, if you could basically streamline uh, agency action, like, well, what do you think would be the best things that government could be doing right now? <laughs> so one of the places that came up quite a bit in my working for the governor is um, permitting, right? So you have an entity that wants to open a plant and they've got to get 17 different sets of permits from 12 different agencies, none of whom work well with one another, all of whom are on different IT systems. Somebody has a database that they're, you know, like, using on it's basically an old Excel spreadsheet. Somebody else over here has 21st century technology and they've all got to get on the same page all on a relatively short order in order to get this project over the finish line. There's a lot of efficiencies to be gained by simply taking a step back and coordinating across agencies and um, making, you know, creating, you know, various accountability systems. So you say, you know, 60 days out, we're going to have all these done and being clear with the public about what they're going to do on the, the, the permitting side. Um, another place where I think there's a lot of room for reforms on the procurement side, um, you know, one of the big challenges that every level of government is facing right now is with IT and with making sure that you are getting high quality vendors to provide you products that actually serve, um, you know, members of the public who need to interact with them. Um, and sometimes our procurement rules are so clumsy or um, uh, poorly designed that we have to either include lots and lots of strictures in the opening contracts that end up handcuffing you down the line or end up um, just taking forever and costing way more than we should be paying for that kind of information technology. So those are two easy ones. Another, another one that I care a lot about um, is judicial review. It is um, considered to be de rigueur for any um, agency action of any kind of moment. And the prevailing assumption seems to be that if the courts have not given their blessing, um, there's something, you know, concerning about what it is agencies are doing. And I see no reason to believe that that's the case. And I don't think that courts are especially effective at overseeing agencies or especially humble about their epistemic limitations. And I would much prefer, or fully cognizant of the consequences of their decisions. They seem to think, oh, well, I'm just telling them they can't do this agency action, but they can go back and just do it again. But of course, that takes years and years. The political window may have closed. It may be the case that the next panel also thinks that the replacement action is going to be invalid. Um, it ends up creating a very difficult to navigate bottleneck that kills projects, um, that kills regulations, that kills moving forward. And, you know, I think if we could do wave one magic wand, it would be to tell the courts to back off. Would you just have, what would you, I mean, can we maybe get into a little bit of the weeds? What kind of, you know, court decisions or what kind of, you know, posture you'd like the courts to take? Is it a standing issue? What's the, what's the worst, you know, what's the worst sort of thing that the courts are doing? Yeah. So the, the place where I think it's most obviously a problem under the APA, you can challenge an agency action if it's, and the courts will strike it down if it is arbitrary or capricious. That's the phrase from the APA. Um, and originally, when the APA was adopted, Congress meant, it, it, by arbitrary and capricious, it, look, 
is this so crazy that you can't even understand how the agency action could solve the problem they're intending to solve? It's a really deferential standard, one that is almost never satisfied because we need to be able to trust that agencies have some room to do their work. Over time, the courts have transformed the arbitrary or capricious language into a roving license to strike down any agency action they deem to be unreasonable. And in a highly divided, in a, in a you know, divided country, you see courts, often courts with a political axe to grind, and both the left and the right, um, striking down regulations or actions from the opposing political party, and often doing so in quite sweeping ways. Um, and doing so not because the agency action is illegal, um, but because they think it doesn't meet their standard of reasonableness. They didn't consider enough alternatives. They didn't cross their T's and dot their I's. They didn't respond to this particular comment that came in. Um, I think that kind of, they call it hard look review. I think that's extraordinarily pernicious because it gives a bunch of generalist judges who don't know a thing about the regulatory domain a ton of latitude to interfere. And I think in practice, it's quite pernicious. So that's one thing that's easy, I think, to either water down or simply eliminate. Um, But I'll tell you that in my world of administrative law, that suggestion would be taken as anathema. Like, how could you possibly even contemplate it? Um, And I think we'd be much better off if we did. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, part of it, you know, it's like um, it was sort of making this case and, you know, making the idea that, you know, government needs to be given uh, more discretion to act in the, in the common good um, to make this sort of more sellable um, to the public. You, you know, you, you brought up these equity concerns and these, you know, these other kind of concerns. And it seems like a lot of the opposition to um, what government is doing tends to be a lot uh, uh, tends to be, you know, opposed to this stuff in the sense that, you know, there's often these values that certain people have, you know, people on the left have that people on the right don't particularly um, don't agree with. Um, would it be sort of, you know, would it be um, perhaps easier to sell sort of a more um, a more sort of active uh, administrative state if it's sort of just tried to do the cost of benefits and not maybe get into these more contentious kind of political questions, these moral ideas that people don't always agree with? Maybe. I mean, I, I, I guess I take your question to be that, that, that there are ends to which the regulatory apparatus is put that don't command widespread support. And maybe what you should do is confine your activity to things where you can sort of bring a broader coalition together. Um, look, I think I think there are all, there, there there's always wisdom in asking: Is the game worth the candle? You know, is is this intervention going to really move the needle, and will it um, be politically uh, stable both in the medium and the long term? And you know, if you're spending a lot of time tilting at windmills or a lot of time building up a policy that's just going to be ripped down the next time a Republican president takes over, I don't think you can look back on that and, and feel terribly proud about what you did. And surely there are efforts like that that occur from time to time because you're trying to satisfy some part of your base or whatever else. And happens on, again, both the left and the right. I don't think this is confined to the left. Um, that said, I think that the other implicit, you know, sort of suggestion in your question, which which you can tell me if you didn't mean to suggest it, 
is that if only Democrats would jettison their most um, outlandish ideas, we'd be okay with, um, you know, like everybody would put down their weapons when it came to environmental regulations that clearly have more benefits than costs or, you know, safety regulations that we can demonstrate actually will save lives. Um, I don't believe that for a moment. Uh, I think a lot of what motivates, not the intellectual right so much as, as the traditional conservative right, is simply a, a distaste for regulation. And, you know, I think I think there's a there's a risk of sounding like you're concern trolling a little bit. Like, oh, you know, like we'd be we'd be on board if you guys would just knock it off with those 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 woke regulations. And, you know, I I I just think I, I think that the roots of the opposition to the regulatory state are much, much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there might be a uh, split here between conservative intellectuals and maybe conservative politicians or conservative media. I mean, if you, if you read conservative media, if you read, you know, conservative Twitter, it's all about, it's all about the woke stuff. I mean, the woke stuff could be, you know, 0.1% of some government program and, you know, they'll focus on it more than anything else. So it does seem plausible to me that at least in the political realm, um, you could probably, you know, have at least some to this stuff. Yeah, I'm. I'm again. I'm a little skeptical. I'm old enough to remember when we were all pre woke, and there was still a lot of fighting. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I think you may want to. Like, I, I worry a little bit that the woke is just a new way of 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 getting leverage for an attack. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I understand that that does motivate lots of people, and certainly woke excesses. You know, they hit a lot of people where they live. I don't mean to diminish that. I just think that were you to eliminate it altogether, we'd be right back to the same place that we're at. Yeah, you may be right. I mean, the, this uh, reminds me of one, one piece of your uh, paper. I think you said that the, um, uh, that the, uh, uh, the regulatory state, you said government bureaucrats were actually quite representative of the public. I think compared mm-hmm. to politicians or judges and, you know, you looked at maybe like, you know, race and maybe a few other things. I was reading that. And I said, you know, what would I said to myself? What's their what's their partisan identification? I mean, what percentage of the federal bureaucracy is Republican? You could understand how to a conservative that, that you know, that might not be reassuring. Right. That, that, yeah, I think, I, think a- I mean, yeah, part of what part of what this tracks and this is a deep problem is the way that our political parties are getting sorted along educational lines and educational attainment. And you know, I think my my preference is to empower our agencies, make sure they are adequately staffed with people who have real expertise in particular domains. And that implies that they will be drawn from folks who have strong educational backgrounds. And that I, I can understand why if, if we are getting polarized along educational lines, that may not be especially reassuring. Um, I will say, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit, um, I think that the partisan affiliation numbers, which, you know, just for listeners out there, it's absolutely true that the vast majority of folk who work in both federal and to some a lesser extent state governments are, you know, identify as liberal, they identify as Democrats. Um, Within institutions, most of the incentives run to achieving your principal's goals, right? That's how you advance in the institution, that's how you understand your role, right? Like folks who are bureaucrats genuinely do understand their role to be to carry out the instructions of their superiors. And so the angst when, you know, Trump was elected was not the angst of like, it was not like, oh, I want to burrow in and fight every tooth and claw. The angst was, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a civil servant. I'm, and I, I want to carry out the goals of my principal. And this particular principal may have goals that I find 
so anathema that this job may just be personally hard, which is just a long-winded way of saying, I think you could make more of the partisan affiliation numbers than um, than you might because you lose sight of the way that that political leadership really does determine the direction that agencies are are, are heading. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. There's education polarization. I mean, there's, you know, the education polarization isn't nearly as, you know, extreme as the, uh, the numbers of the you know, federal uh, uh, employees would suggest. Um, but of course, there's, there's self-selection. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, trying to keep Republicans uh, out or anything. Um, you know, is it, is it uh, you know, is it sort of a, um, would it perhaps be, you know, beneficial to understand? So I guess, let me, let me put it this way. So when I read, um, when I read your stuff, it seems like, you know, a lot of sensible ideas and then there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, trying to improve people's lives in the margins, you know, get you know, people, uh, you know, cleaner water, cleaner, cleaner air, um, you know, don't kill them in car accidents, you know, all that, all that, all that stuff sounds, sounds great. It, it, it's, you know, there's some people I think, for whom that that works, and maybe they're attracted to federal bureaucracy. That's sort of the way the federal bureaucracy is set up to, and that's the way it's sold to sort of bring marginal improvements uh, to people's lives. Um, I think some people are sort of they can only be motivated by some, something like a bigger vision. I think a lot of libertarians are in this category, like oh, privatize you know space travel and the FDA, and we'll cure aging, and we'll go to Mars, and you know we'll, be, we'll all become you know we'll all become, we'll be living as gods. Um, <laughs> Is there, you know, is there room for sort of, you know, the federal government or people who believe in regulation, you know, people who believe in, you know, a more, uh, you know, a more active state uh, to sort of, you know, to sort of make a case that it can appeal to those people who sort of need a bigger vision? Is there, is there, is, I guess, a, a, I guess a way, one way, one thing I might be asking is, you know, is there a way to synthesize sort of the classic, you know, the classical sort of, uh, you know, uh, post New Deal, post Great Society, um, you know, Democrat centrist liberalism with, you know, what Tyler Cowen calls state capacity libertarianism, sort of put that together and have like a vision that can do a lot of things, you know, including bring more maybe people, conservatives into yeah. uh, the federal government and all kinds of other things. I, I hope so. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I am either the right messenger for that for that vision or the um, or that I've got it fully worked out. But I do think that libertarians strike me as sometimes naive about the extent to which government is already interlaced with private action. Like, and and you know the the you know the the cliche is, well, all your goods need to go from your factory on highways. Those are government funded, like, you know, like you guys all need that. And, and, and I think it goes so much deeper than that, right? It's the highways, it's the, the infrastructure, it's the, you know, which is to say, what about the bridges that are nearby or the canals or the railroads? If you need the, beyond the transportation side, you need the water to actually get to your plant. You need electricity to get to your plant. You need to have a workforce that's actually going to be stable. You need to make sure that the public, both at the local level and at the state level, are bought in on what do you want to want to accomplish. You've got to make sure that you're actually able to have the workforce that lives close and actually afford housing. I think there's no world in which the government will become less sort of commingled with the private sector. And right now, government is a problem for the private sector. You know, you see it at the state level. There's a ton of money coming through the state, uh, all the states, through uh, because of uh, a couple of these major, you might think of them as, a, as a industrial policy bills from the Biden administration. And 
that money is pushing forward some really novel investments in electric vehicles, in semiconductor plants, and states are competing ardently to try to attract them. One of the things you see is you're trying to attract these new facilities to create the opportunities for new development is a demand that like, we need to know that your state can actually help us and won't get in our way. We need to know that when we ask for an air permit and a water permit, y'all are going to behave reasonably and do so in a timely fashion. And if we can't get that kind of assurance, we can't, we can't, we can't actually make the investments here that you'd like us to make. Um, so that I think is something like the synthesis that I'd like to see that progressives say we care about like moving forward on the status quo because we don't have enough housing. It's f- like we don't have enough, um, you know, the, it, the, the costs of sclerosis here are falling most heavily on the lower rungs of the income spectrum along racial minorities. And I want folk on the political right to say, Hey, we care about a dynamic um, economy that can, you know, take us to Mars and cure all that ails us and whatever else. And, and I think those two groups really do have a lot in common, but they're at the opposite ends of the political spectrum and finding a way to bring them together is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's all, that's all interesting. Yeah. There is sort of this sort of, I mean, the, the synthesis that I'm sort of, you know, that I, that I'm bringing up, I do see like hints of it, right? I see the smartest, you know, conservative people understand that, you know, YIMBY, YIMBY is probably a good idea that we've gone too far in restricting, um, you know, housing. I, I see the smartest people on, you know, the left uh, acknowledging that too. I, you know, the FDA was another one where it sort of it was, a, you know, there was sort of a, there was a really a smart person consensus about what the government did right and what government did wrong. I mean, to a really, really remarkable degree. Um, and, you know, whether it's, you know, did you read the uh, Matthew Iglesias piece in Bloomberg about, um, about uh, the uh, Operation Warp Speed? It was in the last month or so. Yeah, no, um, it's, yeah, I, I did read it. Uh, the thesis, and correct me if I'm mistaken, but the thesis is something like, you know, it would, it would have been great if Trump had taken credit for this as the greatest win of his administration, which it surely was. Um, and the turning against the vaccines is really going to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to help FDA sort of pick up and think more nimbly in the future. It's actually going to encourage its, its least bold instincts. Right. And it, it's actually, it's sort of darker than that because Trump wanted to take, I mean, Trump was, Trump was pro vaccine. He wanted to take credit for it. He started to get booed um, at his rallies for saying the vaccine was a good thing and sort of yeah. started, you know, tiptoeing away from that. So it's, it's actually a darker, it's like, it's yeah. like actually a much darker vision where it's, it's actually the public is not going to let, you know, it's not going to let this sort of consensus come together, which should be a consensus that this was, you know, a great thing. And we need more, uh, we need more programs like that. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, it is quite remarkable to me, just to, you know, closing in an optimistic vision, you know, Operation Warp Speed leveraged, you know, extraordinary amounts of public spending, a strong signal that we will be flexible with rules that have traditionally been really difficult for you to negotiate. Um, we'll be a willing partner. We are open for business. Can you work with us? And the private sector responded. And I think, I think that's the kind of thing that I look at and think, there are opportunities here where there are, there are so many dollar bills littering the sidewalk that we're not picking up. And, you know, I would like to start thinking harder about exactly how we can start picking them up. 
Uh, Nick, have you looked at at all into the um, the Chinese system? I know China, you know, very you know bad human rights abuses, all that. You know, we we we, we all know that. But um, there's been some interesting things written about sort of its system of governance, and they do a lot of um, uh, a lot of sort of this competition at the local level. They they run they run experiments. They have sort of objective metrics. Um, there's a lot that's interesting there. I mean, have have you looked into this at all? And do you think there's anything? I haven't spent a lot of time looking into it. No, I'm I'm roughly familiar with it. And I think there's a lot of folk who look at China with that kind of, you know, I understand this impulse with a kind of, I wish we could manage that, right? Uh, an old friend of mine was uh, went to Shanghai, I think, and was riding around on new bike paths that had been installed between the last time he was here and that time. Um, and that kind of speed, that kind of bold thinking, it's hard to imagine uh, here in the, the U.S. And I think uh, at least those of us who who'd like a little more dynamism pine for that. I, you know, I think I'm a little skeptical that what works over there is going to work here. Um, and, you know, I, I'm also skeptical that we would want to go nearly as far as all that. I mean, I'm talking here about a calibration problem. I'm not talking about, a, a you know, let's just, you know, forget about trying to hear what the public cares about. We're just going to decide it from on high. I don't think that would be healthy in the long run. Um, but look, <laughs> I'm also... I think this is a time for us all to take a step back and think hard about like, what can we change in order to make this better? Cause it's not working right now. Um, you know, I think to bring it back to China, I think one of the risks that keeps me up at night is if you make government unable to satisfy the aspirations of the public, um, you're going to get folk like Trump who say, I alone can fix it, who come in and say, I can break through all the constraints. I can, I can be the person who can make this government work for you. And that's the accumulation of highly uncabined discretion in the hands of a single person in a way that I think is anathema to what exact, you know, what what we're hoping to avoid when we we fetter government. In other words, the constraints can be so tight that you end up, you end up creating the very kind of unbounded executive power that you are trying to avoid. But, you know, that's sort of a scenario where, you know, there's, you know, unhappiness with, you know, the American system and what's going on. When you look at sort of, you know, maybe to push back on that a little bit, I mean, what, when you look at, you know, sort of American growth, economic growth, um, the last 30, 40 years, you compare it to other um, large countries. It's, it's not, you know, it's not, it's far from obvious they're doing something better than us, right? Because the U.S. has had faster that's right. growth generally than, than Europe. Um, so is, 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 is part of the, the, you know, the issue maybe that just the U S is, we're doing fine. I mean, maybe, maybe somehow, you know, it's beyond us, but somehow this whole thing of APA procedure just somehow works and the private sector just, you know, works around this enfeebled government, which can't screw, screw things up. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of responses. One is, um, I think some of our problems are being papered over. Um, I think there are long-term failures to invest. I mean, here in Michigan, you know, the governor won and uh, ran and won on a platform to fix the damn roads. I mean, literally, roads are crumbling at a greater extent in Michigan than they have been. And, you know, like you can kind of patch them up, you can get by. But over time, that's going to put a serious crimp in your ability to stay at the leading edge of, of economic development. I, I have, you know, big fears about um, other kinds of infrastructure and workforce concerns over the long term. Um, so, you know, some of our our failure, you know, housing is a good example, right? Like you can refuse to build for 20, 30, 40 years and 
you know, it's not a big deal until all of a sudden it is. And I do think there are a bunch of problems kind of like that festering under the surface. Um, I don't think Europe is in great shape. And I think to some extent, some of the procedural um, finickiness that I see in the American system is duplicated elsewhere. It it might be partly a response to affluence um, and people being pretty satisfied with the status quo and creating all sorts of rules that entrench that status quo and not just here, but elsewhere. The last thing I'll say is just okay, you're right, we're muddling through and it's probably going to be okay. And I don't have any reason to, I don't doubt you. I, I agree with you. I think that's that's true. We could be so much more. Um, and I do think government has a constructive role to play in in making us so much more. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, um, so I asked about China. There's a, um, there's a, uh, this um, Canadian province, province, was it British Columbia? It was, um, Ontario. I, I, I forget which. I forget which province. Do you know about this? They did a massive um, deregulation thing where they had a rule where you have to get rid of two for every one you put in. Sort of like the Trump administration thing, but it was actually more stringent. Have you hmm. read about this? I haven't looked at it. I'm familiar with the Trump administration effort, but not the yeah okay. the effort I'll, of the Canadian province. Okay, I'll then I, I won't ask. I won't. I won't ask you to comment. But the the, the larger, um, you know, the larger uh, question, the larger point is, uh, you know, who who really is doing doing this well? I mean, the Ch- China. I mean, they're a dictatorship. You know, they're they're still a middle income country, so they're hungry. They want to catch up to the rest of the world. We and Europe, the Europeans, are sort of. Uh, you know, we're affluent, so maybe this is a natural consequence of affluence. You know, maybe you know, barring this one Canadian province that I can't remember which one it was that might have actually uh, figured this out. But is there somebody who has? You know, is there is there some country you look to and say, um, you know, that they're doing this right? They've got they've got administrative law down, and we should you know aspire yeah. to be something closer to them. You know, I, I'm not a comparativist, so I'm not sure I've got a great answer for you. Um, we do have good cross cultural cross cross country comparisons of things like how much does it cost to build a mile of subway right now that's not just a function of the law there are a lot of other factors that go into it and i think as we're learning more we're learning that it is a multiplicity of factors but we also know that we spend an order of magnitude more per mile of line here in the us and the law certainly has a role to play there so you know if i was going to look to try to see the problems that we've got here and to try to fix some of them, I would look to places like Spain, which have extremely low uh, cost per mile and say, well, what are they doing right that we aren't? And it may be domain specific, right? It may be that there are certain kinds of rules and certain kinds of domains that make it easier for them to build the subways, but make it much harder for them to do, you know, fill in the blank. Um, And we have some advantages along some margins and some disadvantages along others. And, you know, I don't think there's a, I don't think we are going to find a, you know, let's just do everything like they do it kind of answer out there. I think what we need to do is start taking, you know, what, what I'm hoping that, that my paper accomplishes um, is for people to stop being um, so um, credulous about the claimed benefits of any kind of government, you know, rule that says, we want government to do X, and so we'll pass a law or we'll adopt a new procedure. And to ask simply and carefully, like, are the benefits of this rule going to exceed its costs? Are we actually going to achieve the goals that we set here? Are we going to make it much harder for the agency to do its job? And that kind of reflexive checking of enthusiasm for the latest procedural fad or whatever, um, 
I think over time and along a bunch of different margins could do a lot of good. Mm. What do you think about um, sort of you talked about differences between countries? What about what about differences between uh, states? You know, most states I assume don't have anything equivalent to the APA. I mean, you've worked in Michigan. Are there uh, just any thoughts on what states are doing well, what they're not doing well, or compared? Yeah, most states do have do have versions of the APA. Many states have versions that are even more stringent. Um, and you know, you can see um, those creating challenges for state agencies in their daily operations all the time. Um, in particular, you have even more stringent judicial review at the state and local level than you often do at the federal level. Um, so I don't think there is any state that's doing it perfectly, but you have to remember they're all looking to the federal government for a certain kind of guidance. So there's a lot of learning that happens there. One place where I do think you've seen kind of counterintuitively um, some real progress uh, here has been, you know, Texas has had an edge on renewable energy for many, many years because it is separated from the rest of the national electrical grid, had made some large investments early on, and is, I think, you know, all else equal, more impatient with some of the procedural, um, uh, some of the, the um, efforts to prevent private investment. And um, as a result, they've got a ton more renewable power than virtually, I think, any state. Uh, and you know, they're hopefully that trend line will continue. Although the politics of renewables is such that it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, this reminds me of Ezra Klein talking. He talked about I think I think he said the Republican states were relative relatively better on better on housing um, for you know for reasons. Sometimes that's to progressive ends. I mean, progressives often care about um, you know poor people and racial minorities and people who are hurt by the high cost of housing. So. Yeah, seems like another sort of paradox here with Texas is leading the country in, in renewable uh, energy. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Nick, I, you know, I've enjoyed this discussion. I'm interested in this synthesis. I think there's intellectual sort of synergy here by a lot of smart people who sort of seem like political um, opponents most of the time. So, I mean, I'm interested in that. I've, you know, enjoyed. Uh, talking to you. I'm a little bit of a, you know, admin- I, what, when I was in law school, administrative procedure um, was actually like one of my favorite courses. And I don't know how much of my audience actually cares about uh, the administrative, you know, there's like all this talk, oh, the administrative state, it's almost like a talking point on the right. I don't, I don't know how many people care about administrative procedures or thinking, uh, thinking carefully about it. Um, but yeah, this, this was fun. Do you have um, recommendations as far as people who, you know, want to know more about administrative law, know, want to know about more about the regulatory state, sort of what it does well, what it doesn't, um, what's your sort of go-to as far as people becoming informed? Yeah, I think for popular books, and I mentioned this on the Klein podcast, Michael Lewis has a book called The Fifth Risk, which looks at the Trump administration taking over from the Obama administration. And to, I think, quite effectively explore what a bunch of agencies that you probably don't know anything about do. So what does the Department of Energy do exactly? And why should we care? And Lewis makes a really um, careful, thoughtful case for government does a whole lot more than you think. And what it does really matters. And the folk there are working overtime to try to figure out how to, how to, how to improve the world. And you know, shouldn't be maligned thoughtlessly by folk who don't even have the dimmest appreciation of what it is they do. Um, and I think, I think that is a useful corrective, a way of thinking, okay, maybe this is bigger and more complicated and necessary than I thought it was. And maybe I ought to be thinking hard about how we can make it 
more nimble, more effective, focus its efforts on the things it does well, and refocus it away from the things it does poorly. I think that 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 feels like the synthesis that I'd like to go for, and um, I think I think that's where I would I would direct popular listeners. Okay, the Michael Lewis's Michael Lewis's book. Okay, and um, what do you do? Are you thinking about going back into government service, or are you staying in academia, or sort of what's next for you? So I, you know, I'm an academic by background. I'll stay here for for the time being, at least. Um, government service is was such an honor and so much fun, but it is so taxing, um, and I definitely need to take a, a big step back from it. And if in the future I have another opportunity to serve, um, you know, I'd definitely be open to it. But I have no present plans. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, and um, yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. <laughs>